0: Welcome to The Daily Bolster. Each day, we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to The Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster, and I'm here today with my friend Jerry Colonna. Uh, Jerry is the founder uh, of Reboot. Uh, Reboot, if you don't know it, is uh, one of the premier, if not the premier, leadership consulting and coaching firms in the world. Um, Jerry has had a great career um, spanning publishing, venture capital, and coaching, which we'll talk about a little bit more here today. Um, And uh, Jerry's also the author of uh, a book called Reboot, like his firm, uh, and the forthcoming book, Reunion, which we will also talk about today. So Jerry, thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks. Thanks. And thanks for that introduction. And I, I like the fact that you leave out that I was once an investor in your last company. Okay.
0: Okay. That's, well, I said you were a top, you know, a top. Uh, <laughs> I, a top- yeah, I was a good investor. So, of course you would invest in, you know, in top companies. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I'd love to just start uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to Reunion, uh, the new book, we'll get to coaching, but I'd love to start a little bit about with your um, kind of professional career um, did you, and I actually should know this, but did you do something before CMP or were you a reporter or? Yeah, I,
1: I was, uh, <clears throat> assistant manager in a bookstore <laughs> okay. and I was a locker repair guy. Um, it's a whole nother story, but no, I started working for CMP when I was, uh, uh, junior in college. Okay. And uh, it's, for- this is a silly question. Is CMP around anymore? Yeah, it 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 through it through a bunch of different um acquisitions, the some of the original publications are still operating, but I I forget which f- company actually owns right. it now. It might be United Business Media, UBN.
0: I'm trying to even think how to put that in context for people who are um newer in their careers and have never heard of it. It's sort of like crunch of 25 years ago
1: yeah well maybe longer Um, years ago yeah yeah i mean the 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 we were a technology publishing company our competitors at the time were uh idg which is still doing well as if davis um, and we all published this printed magazine thing that would come out every week and I was part of the team that oversaw the transition to electronic publishing. We actually had a business unit that I headed up called the Electronic Media Unit. Um, that's how odd it was. It
0: got suitably 1990s. Yes,
1: yes, 1994, before many people who are listening to this were even born.
0: And uh, uh, you ended up uh, as as publisher, Just of electronic or or overall
1: of of No, I was the editor. So I was never on the publishing side, So I didn't do sales. Okay. But I was the editor of a magazine called Information Week. Right. um, Where I started as an intern. Um, My former uh, boss, Michael Leeds, used to joke that I started in the daycare center because that's how young I was. And um, I became the editor of the magazine at a relatively young age, 24 years old
0: um that's and, very young to be editing
1: anything yeah i was not just editing i had a staff of about 40 most of whom were significantly older than me so i learned a lot about like how do you do that um and how, and do you, then how do you do that?
0: that's a good uh, question.
1: carefully <laughs>
0: <laughs> well look we you know we advise and i'm sure you advise founders all the time like you should be hiring people better than you you should be hiring people more experienced than you Um, uh, so how did you do that your first, first time around the block?
2: Um, I
1: think I, I think the benefit that I had, uh, well, first of all, I had a boss who was older, Leighton McCartney, who's wonderful person, but, uh, and then Becky Barnett before that, who then became the, the publisher. But, um, uh, so I wasn't the ultimate boss. Um, in that way, but I think the thing that I had that I gave, uh, was a vision for what the magazine could be. And, um, uh, I, I, did a lot of dry erase board talks about what the magazine could be and, um, and, and in building and working with the staff, the goal was actually to put that together to make that happen. But I definitely, and, and I was a good editor, um, but I definitely relied upon those with more experience than I had to, to actually do the leadership management, the leadership piece of the business. Right. With the job.
0: So you're, um, uh, the editor of information week, uh, at the, you know, sort of the dawn of, of the internet and, you know, middle of the computing revolution, um, it sort of makes sense that you would move into venture capital because why not?
1: Well, there was an interim step between. So I left that position, stayed with the company, and then headed up our efforts to do to figure out publishing on this weird new medium called the web. Right. And so it was actually that experience that was most relevant to being a venture capitalist. Right.
0: It's presumably that experience you're you're meeting, you know. All the tech founders that are building the publishing infrastructure on the web.
1: Yeah, well, this was even before there was such a thing as publishing infrastructure. We we were only the third entity to ever sell advertising on a website. Hmm. That's how early it was, right? And so, what I think what led the folks who who recruited me to join a venture a newly forming venture capital firm, what they saw in me was someone who had a vision for how advertising supported media was going to be delivered through this medium and that what was this medium, what was the potential for this medium to become? So one of my earliest investments was a company called Lycos, which was arguably the first ad supported search engine out there.
0: Yeah. God, Lycos. The, the, remember the, the search engine wars when the very mm-hmm. pretty
2: cool. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: there were sort of four, five, six different search engines. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. probably none of which exist anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. Only
0: that's Yahoo. About, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yahoo. Uh,
0: so um uh so you move, you start Flatiron Partners. Um well there was a venture was another, was before one? that. The, oh, there which, was a firm before that, okay.
1: Yeah, called At Ventures, and that's where I went from CMP to CMGI which was no relationship, but was a direct marketing firm that had invested a lot in building internet companies. And they launched a venture firm. That's where I was recruited. And then I went from CMGI at Ventures, which was our venture u- unit, to joining Fred Wilson to form Flatiron Partners. And that happened in 1996. In 96. Okay.
0: And so Flatiron had a, had a five-year run. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was, you know, certainly the premier early stage tech investor in New York or internet investor in New York, probably one of the top ones anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, when you kind of reflect back on, on those five years, which were crazy, right? Those were crazy, crazy years.
1: Totally crazy.
0: What, what are some of the big learnings you had in those years?
1: Well, I probably, I mean, there were a lot, I mean, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the venture business. Um, You know, I learned at the side of probably one of the smartest guys in the business, Fred. Um, I learned the value of building teams and how to do that. So in some ways it prepared me for coaching. But I think that among the many experiences was to live through a boom bust cycle. Uh, because we went from everything we touched went to gold to everything we touched went to shit. Um, The other thing that happened during that period was I developed some of the most important relationships of my life. Uh, My friendship with Brad Feld, for example, my friendship with Fred, which both continue deeply to this day. Um, And then, of course, we invested in Return Path, your pharma uh, gig. Um, so it, it we learned a lot. I learned a lot. Um, but the emotional ride of the roller coaster ride of up and down, I mean, it was hard for me. And I think it contributed to the depression that led me to leave the venture business and f- kind of wander in the desert of who the hell am I? And what do I want to be when I grow up? kind of thing.
0: Um, when you think back on the investments that that you led over those years, um What's one that stands out as like, yeah, and that was just great? Mm. And what's one that's that, you know, in the rearview mirror, you're like, oh, ha- how'd
2: that happen?
1: Um well, there were a lot of investments around which I was proud in, in that way. GeoCities was probably the one that was the biggest outlier, both in terms of return on investment, but also because of. You know, it was kind of the fruition of what I saw was possible. And to be clear, I was first exposed to GeoCities when I was working at CMGI Adventures. At we provided the first capital, outside capital in to make that happen. But being a participant in the creation of that felt like participating in the creation of what I would say is the entire uh, what we now call creator. Okay. I mean,
0: that was web, that was Web Two during Web One.
1: Yeah, And, uh, you know everything from blogging to 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 Instagram to everything that we see now to all forms of social media yeah. could trace its roots back to uh, um, uh, GeoCities and its couple of competitors at the same time. Yeah. So that that was the biggest one. I I think there were a couple of I won't name them because those folks to still around, but there were a couple of like, like what the hell was I thinking in terms of the prices we paid? And I remember one investment we, we put like $20 million in and within the year it was like dead. And I, and in the end, I mean, I'll say this, I should have, I should have paid attention when due diligence showed up, showed that the CEO was, more interested in the exploration for extraterrestrial life than they were in building a viable business and i'm not kidding so
0: that uh yeah that's uh you got to put that on the on the due diligence checklist
1: yeah
2: <laughs>
0: I <know>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean look business building in 1995 6 7 and 8 and venture capital in 95 6 7 and 8 were both very uh undisciplined relative to what they are now mm. Um, so, so talk about the wandering in the desert part for a couple of minutes. So mm-hmm. Flatiron kind of winds up, uh, toward the mm-hmm. end of one, mm-hmm. you and Fred and Bob are, you know, kind of managing the port remnants of the portfolio for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, when you didn't start reboot for many years, right? Um, what, what was the, the journey you went on in those years?
1: Well, the, the journey was a kind of early midlife crisis in many ways, but it was really more, and I detail this and reboot the book, it was, it was also more coming to grips with, um, let's call it the disordered parts of my personality that really stretch back to a childhood that was marked by depression and alcoholism, my father's alcoholism and violence and deprivation. It was a tough, tough childhood. And it all sort of came to a head, if you will, when I was 38. And, uh, you know, some people think, oh, well, you know, he didn't really want to work in the venture business anymore. And there was a part of me that didn't want to do that. But the real reason I didn't want to do that was because, as I often say, the internal me did not map to the external me and that the resulting depression, which had plagued me almost all of my life, was no longer bearable. And, you know, when you find yourself with constant suicidal ideation, you need help. Yeah. And you need help. And so the first few years of the wandering, as I put it, was mostly me sitting on my ass um confronting stuff and and when i say that i mean it literally i would sit in the meditation cushion and really dealing with the thoughts and feelings that were coming up and then i would do a tremendous number of personal development work you know as well as traveling the world i mean i i went to cross the polar ice cap in greenland i traveled throughout patagonia I visited places. I went to the Grand Canyon three times during this period. Um, I was looking for something. Um, I got into coaching really almost accidentally in the sense that, um, the way the unconscious tends to work is waking up one day and realizing that that's actually what I really want to do.
0: And what was, what, what was the spark? Like, was it that you had gotten the value out of introspection yourself and wanted to No, others no. Get
1: there what to- it was, was a young guy had come into my office, kind of lost himself. And I found myself, uh, right. He was coming into network his way into a startup and I was kind and I would, took a meeting and, you know, nothing to gain from it. I don't even remember his name, but I remember asking him why he had become a lawyer in the first place because he wanted to leave the firm and he wanted to join a startup. And then he started to cry. And I then gave him a couple of books to read and responded really from my heart. And then I said,
2: I love doing this. I love being fully present, being real, no bullshit.
1: Uh, I love, you know, the books I gave him were books that had helped me. And I realized that I had a gift and that part of the depression that I had was that I was not actually living into my vocation. And by vocation, I mean, it's root word calling from the divine. You know, a few, few weeks ago, Fred and I had lunch in Manhattan and uh, he made me cry because he said something to the effect. He said, you're a great investor, but now you're doing the thing you were born to do.
2: And it shows. So.
1: Anyway, that's more information than you're asked. But I
2: don't know. No, that look, the I I always tell
0: people when they ask me for career advice to look for the intersection of the thing they're great at and the thing they love. Mm-hmm. And I I fear that most people never find that. Right. Or many people never find that. Right. Um and sometimes it takes a career or two careers. Uh, or four. before you find that. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> um, so let's. Um, shift gears a little bit and talk about um, your new work, reunion. Mm-hmm. Um, I was lucky enough that you gave me an advanced copy, so I read it. I could try to summarize it. <laughs> why don't you Why don't you do that? Because you'll do much better than than I will.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so give us a sense of what what it is and how it came to be. So one of
1: the core animating theses of Reboot, my first book, and even the work that we do is that better humans make better leaders. And that's a simplistic way of saying to lead well, you have to do this sort of inner work. And that if you don't do your inner work, you run the risk of spreading toxicity throughout an organization. And that is true and valid. What I came to realize, and it was, it was during the pandemic and it was during the protests for George Floyd's murder um, that uh, I came to realize that that was insufficient. And like so many things in my life, The thing that propelled me to see that most clearly was my daughter, my daughter, Emma, who is 30 now. And there's this moment in the summer of 2020 when, like so many of us, I was freaked out about COVID. And I live in a nice farm outside of Boulder, Colorado, and it's really, really protected by 40 acres and all of this stuff. And my daughter was protesting. And one night she is trapped on the Manhattan bridge between a phalanx of cops coming from Brooklyn and a phalanx coming from Manhattan. And there were probably 5,000 people on the bridge. But she's texting me about what to do if she gets pepper sprayed.
2: And I realized that you know, I said before that, you know, this
1: is a vocation. I realized that God gave me a gift that I can speak in a way that I can be heard. That in addition to the privilege and power that comes from this body, this cisgender, white, straight body, with all its power and privilege, I have a moral and ethical responsibility
2: to lean into hard questions. And to speak up.
1: And the result is reunion. And what reunion basically says that the animating question of reboot was: how have I been complicit in creating the conditions in my life that I say I don't want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You say you don't want to be busy,
2: but you fill your day with meetings. What's up? Really
1: important question. In this case, The corollary question is, how have I been complicit in and benefited from a world I say I don't want to see? See, we don't want to see
2: gun violence as the number one cause of death of children. Nobody wants to see that. And yet, Americans continue to buy guns far outpacing anybody else.
1: What's up with that? And I would argue. That so much of the behavior that we've seen, so much of the behavior that we see even now at this time, Matt, where, you know, a fucking beer company gets protested because of having a trans woman as a spokesperson, like what the fuck? So much of what we see about the world right now stems from this profound fear of the other person. And so hopefully people will find what I tried to do with reunion is to provide a hopeful way of encountering. Because reunion implies that there was a time when we were actually not divided. And this isn't some Pollyanna bullshit like, oh, let's all just get along and sing Kumbaya. This is like, no, we actually have to do this real work. Just like you have to do your work as a leader. You have to do your work
2: because we have all been complicit in what is referred to as systemic othering. So that's reunion. Yeah. I I found the, the, I don't know if you coined that term
0: or if I just hadn't run across it.
1: But I hadn't coined it. It's a. Uh, uh, I first encountered the word through the works of a Berkeley professor named John A. Powell, uh, who is a law professor, and he runs the uh, Othering and Belonging Institute at the University of California, Berkeley.
0: Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a really powerful um, word and construct um, that that. Really resonated with me, and I think it works. It works in lots of directions or on lots of levels, right? Certainly, mm-hmm. um, racism has always been othering, mm-hmm. right? So I mean, go back thousands mm-hmm. of years. That's not a new. Mm-hmm. It's maybe a new term, but that's not a new mm-hmm. concept. Um, but when I when I take a look at what is happening in in our country now, mm-hmm. um, it feels like it's nothing but othering. And some of, it, some of it is, you know, in the politics, right? Like if, you're, if you say A, then I have to say not A, mm-hmm. uh, right? And how the, the, the two principal parties have gotten just further and further and further apart. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But some of it's also, uh, you know, I find it sometimes even in, in well-intentioned identity politics.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and um,
1: we're yeah. always making the other of the other person.
0: Right. Right. So you're, I think one of the points you make in Reunion, um, and you just sort of said it a couple of minutes ago, is that people who are leaders
2: mm-hmm. um, of anything mm-hmm. need to be thoughtful um, about um,
0: the lack of belonging mm-hmm. or othering and think about what they can do to change that.
1: Right. And I'll
2: I'll say, say,
0: go ahead.
1: Yeah, I'll say two things. One is I'm I'm happy that you saw what I was trying to build, which is a through line. That there is a connection between anti-Semitism and anti black racism. That there's a connection between uh our obsession with guns and a nativist anti immigration stance. That when we deny human and civil rights to women and their their right to to determine their own body experience that there's a relationship when we deny gender affirming care to a trans teenager that this is all actually part of a a larger uh experience going on and you know i was really struck during the the three years that i was working on reunion two and a half, um, by an Elie Wiesel quote, and Elie obviously is a, a, a great teacher as it relates to um, the Holocaust, but, but even more our own experience with that form of othering. And of course, he said, neutrality
2: always favors the oppressor.
1: And, you know, we're at a funny moment right now in business leadership because we tell ourselves our version of shut up and dribble, you know, that pejorative exhortation to an athlete who might take a knee, shut up to do the thing you were supposed to do.
2: But if I believe, and I do believe this, that we are humans before we are CEOs, then our neutrality. Shut up and dribble, just focus on the business, favors the oppressor.
0: That is a that's a really powerful quote. And um, uh, you know, I've read I've read a lot of Elie Wiesel, and I don't recall that,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but that's a really powerful one. I, I mean, you take that into the into the realm of geopolitics for a second, and you look at the major countries that are uh remaining neutral in the russia unprovoked
1: land uh, war in europe
0: yeah unprovoked right. uh, war on the ukraine and you know they're calling it an internal dispute or a territorial dispute and uh and they're just you know they're not aligned right that is um that is not doing anything to favor the ukrainians let's put it that
1: way right. look my my father was in the army at the tail end of World War II. He didn't see combat uh, when he and his unit went through Italy and into Germany because it was towards the end. But my uncles did. And they were imperfect. The United States was imperfect during that time. Ken Burns' documentary on America and the Holocaust is very, very clear. But what if we had shut up and dribbled? then
2: well there
0: were some moments where where we did but it was yes. and it counted okay. at the end we didn't that's right that's right
1: that's right that's absolutely right but what if that was our policy forever and never
2: okay i mean for god's sake
1: this is what's at stake you know the number one cause of death for children under the age of 20 is gun violence Gun violence.
2: You have children. I have children.
1: You know, I, I was writing this book when the shooting at Uvalde, Texas happened.
0: Sadly, you were writing the book when thousands of shootings happened.
2: Exactly. Because, because, because every day. So what's it going to take for
1: business leaders to stand up?
2: So
0: let's so let's double click on that, and um, and maybe we'll make that the the topic we riff on to sort of close. Because um, I love these conversations to be to have practical takeaways mm-hmm. for the
2: CEOs who listen. Mm-hmm. Um, what does what can the CEO of
0: a startup a scale up 50 person mm-hmm. company 200 300, even a 500 person company mm-hmm. what what can that person do what should that person do and how and this is this is the thing i struggle with personally as a ceo
2: mm-hmm. how do you think about making decisions in public stances where you are likely going to alienate
0: half your employees Mm -hmm. half your potential customers in Mm -hmm. a world where everyone's the other so -hmm. what what can a ceo do what should a ceo do i guess the other the other way around Mm -hmm. and and how do you how do you think about dealing with such a polarized world
1: so i gave you um an organizing question, which was, how have I been complicit in and benefited from? The corollary question to that is, what am I willing to give up that I love and value in order to see the world that I want to be? And you said in, in your imagined scenario that you're going to alienate 50% of your employees. That's the fear. That's what I'm suggesting you need to be willing to confront now the truth is you're not going to alienate 50 percent of your employees study after study after study shows that our employees want us to take
2: stance but you may alienate some
1: but here's the thing matt you could you could do a lot of things to generate profit you could sell methamphetamines you could sell fentanyl You generate a lot of profit, but you would violate your core values and principles. So you're not going to do that.
2: By the way, not every leader has the same values. Some leaders are perfectly happy running Ponzi schemes. We know this. So what you're really saying is, should I really lead?
1: with an articulated, consistent set of values that says belonging
2: is one of the most important principles at this company. Now, imagine you make a statement like that and 10% of your employees say, I'm out of here. Goodbye, good riddance to bad trash.
1: Okay, come on. Now, the f- real fear is what happens to my stock price? What happens to investors? They don't want... Now, I'm not suggesting that you take your eye off the ball in building the business. But we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can be really good at running the container of the business profitably, thoughtfully, being good stewards of capital hiring and firing people as necessary,
2: and live according to values. What do you think the role of the board is? I think it's the
1: same thing. I think it's absolutely the same thing. You know, what is the fear of the board? In a public scenario, the fear of the board is, oh, my God, we can't have ESG values Environmental and social
2: governance values. what? Why
1: Because our stock price is going to go down. What about the investors who buy the company because they like that? Oh, you mean you have to actually work hard to sell the relationship between behaving well
2: and doing well? Okay. It's hard. Um, newsflash
1: being a ceo being a board member is hard anyway
2: are the
0: values of the company the values of the ceo the leadership team the owners they're all different
2: people they all have different values how do you how do you reconcile that as how do you reconcile it now matt sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's easier than others
1: yeah. Oh, you mean you use conversation and discussion and respect to come to a unified view of how we're going to navigate conflicting commitments and values. I mean, th- this is why in some ways this is natural work for me, because the, st- the tools that we teach listen well to your employees, right? That's, that's a values statement. The tools that we teach are the exact same tools. Whether you choose to do a DEI program or not is up to you. But what is not
2: a choice is neutrality.
1: How you want to manifest your values, it's up to you. Nobody calls into question Chick-fil-A's decision to close on Sundays because of their values. I mean, some people do, but nobody really, right? They don't get dinged in the stock market because of this. But somehow, a value system that says that's
2: rooted in empathy is somehow an anathema. That's silly. And worse, that leads to death.
1: And I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but look at the statistics. The number one cause of death for trans teens is suicide. And we're debating whether or not they can see a
2: therapist. But where's our compassion? I think one of the most poignant quotes in the book, and maybe this is a good thing to end on, is that
0: the business of business is belonging.
1: Glad you right. like that. One. And
0: it's sort of, you know, it, 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 it's a riff on, you know, Calvin Coolidge or whatever, mm-hmm. right? The business of America is business. Mm-hmm. The business of business is belonging. So do a very quick unpack on that and then we'll wrap up.
1: Sure. And I don't mean to say in opposition to the business of business being to generate enough profit so that there's a tomorrow. I think that that's critically important, but that's
0: otherwise there is no business. That's
1: right. That's right. So the container of the business needs tending to always has, always will. But the why of the business, when you there's something expansive and generative about going beyond generating profit for profit's sake, and into generating profit to to foster a sense of community with your clients with your with your employees, with the employees' families. I mean, look, I know how you run the business, right? If you had an employee retreat day, I bet you all the
2: kids of your employees would be there. Why? Because you got values. You know, you were asking me about CMP.
1: CMP was... One of the most admired companies in the the country because it had an on-site daycare system. And my oldest two children benefited from their dad changing their diapers every day and feeding them strained peas at lunchtime. It was a better place to work because they wasted money on an on-site daycare program. Okay, we know this is true. This is not debatable.
2: Not everyone knows that's true,
0: but it is well, It is at the root of an employee-centric culture. A,
1: a, that's a, right. People-first right.
0: culture, which is what-
1: People-first people culture. culture. That's right. That's right. That's right.
0: Jerry Colonna, thank you for the conversation. Thank you for reunion. Thank you. And thank you for teaching everybody uh, so much about the things you've learned in your journey and how all of us can do a better job making the world a better place.
1: Amen, brother. Thank you for having me.